Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 9 in the series The Armour of God. This is the evening session of Sunday the 9th of August 2009 and the Bible reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 18. Here's Pastor Russ Iverson. It's a privilege to be here again tonight and we look over to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. I do appreciate your prayer on behalf of my family and uh, prayerfully one of these days before uh, our time, our privilege to be here is finished that uh, I'll be able to have my better half here and uh, and uh, introduce you. In Ephesians chapter 6, picking up in uh, verse 10, finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand... Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We had just spoken about the shield of faith, and we said that that faith is the faith, the one faith of uh, chapter 4 and uh, verse 5, and uh, that system of doctrine, that uh, that, uh, uh, that body of doctrine that uh, underpins all that we believe. And uh, historically, uh, uh, fundamental Baptists have uh, basically uh, agreed around 20, 20 some odd key cardinal doctrines. That system of faith, it is right doctrine that puts out the fiery darts of error and heresy. Before we go, we need to remind ourselves, Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, finally, my brethren, Adelphoi Mo, Adelphoi being the vocative noun, he addresses these people by what they actually, in fact, are. Brethren by new birth. Paul is not writing to the unsaved here. Paul is writing to saved people. So he's not here writing to tell them that they need to be saved. So in our text when we read, and take the helmet of salvation, kaitain parakephalein tau suterio dexisate, tain parakephalein is the accusative singular feminine article and noun. It is the direct object of the verb, but it is emphatically before the verb. Perikephalion 
is only used two times in the in the New Testament. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, peri is the preposition around or through. Kafale is the head. This helmet was a means to encircle the head, to protect the head. It was made of thick leather, later on brass, later on some form of uh, uh, other tin or steel, metal. Uh, it was made uh, here, and its purpose was to deflect the blows of the broadsword, deflect the blows, hopefully, of the battle axe, deflect the blows, hopefully, of the mace. Apositional to the helmet is the genitive adjective. Toy or tausotirio, of salvation. Many struggle over what precisely Paul means here. But in the structural middle of the verse, between the two direct objects is the verb. And uh, uh, dexaste is the two-person plural. He's addressing the members at Ephesus. It's an aorist middle deponent imperative. It's a command to a one-time action they take concerning themselves. The meaning is active. They are to act, but the form is passive. It implies that there's the outside help to do so. The command is to receive, to accept, to take. All are agreed. The helmet is to, uh, to help uh, defend against the blow from the romphia, the, the two-handed Broadsword, a sword that crushes, that severs, that mutilates. It's double-edged. It cuts both directions. Aimed at the head, Satan's efforts are to sever the, the, the security and the assurance of the believer. His cutting edges are discouragement and doubt. His tactics are to undercut our faith, undercut our confidence by constantly beating us down with past failure, past sin, ongoing problems, health difficulties, any tool that has any kind of a negative impact upon our lives to divert our focus from the Lord, our service to the Lord, to cut off our confidence, our confidence in God's love, our confidence in God's prayer, our care, our confidence in God's provision. And, you know, you know that he succeeded when Someone comes and says, why did God do that to me? He's impugned God. The tactic generally is to wait until a great victory. Then the first jab will be pride. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, for example, you have the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. God had uh, God had been trying to get Ahab's attention for some time, and uh, and uh, he had told Elijah to pray that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And uh, they had a little bit of a meeting, and uh, and uh, God told Elijah to set a meeting. So they set a meeting, and uh, on Mount Carmel, and. Uh, 
you had a humongous monster uh, uh, clergy meeting, I guess you could call it. Uh, 850 prophets on Jezebel's payroll, the 400 of the groves, the 450 of Baal. Uh, she fed them all on a regular basis, and, uh, and uh, so they were all assembled, and Elijah calls down fire and uh, takes them out. But then you find that Elijah felt like that he was the only faithful one left. And uh, I had to say, well, I, I've got, still got 750 left in the country. Pride. God brought a great victory. As I recall, I think he prayed something like 63 words after these guys had been up there all day long and they'd cut themselves and, and they'd bled and, and all this other stuff and, and all of it unscriptural. Nothing happened. Elijah prays 63 words, fire falls. And he winds up fleeing from old ugly Jezebel. He hides in the juniper jungle of discouragement, self-pity, and despair. Pride is the opening wedge. Got his eyes off God. Pulled a U-turn and put them on himself. Or Peter. Peter uttered the brilliant profession that Christ was the Messiah. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And straightway the Lord had to, had to bring him up short. Get thee behind thee, me Satan. Peter went on to protest his faithfulness. Though all forsake thee, I will not. And in the garden, he drew the sword, cut off Malchus' ear. You know, this is free, it's not in the notes. But Peter chops off Malchus' ear in front of this entire crowd, all the priests, and the, priest, uh, the, 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 temple, the temple soldiers, and the mob that Judas had there. The Lord reaches down, picks the ear up, puts it back on, heals it perfectly, no stitches, no sutures, no scars. And they still took him out and crucified him. And they said, show us a sign. Uh, but Peter whacks off Malchus' ear. It's as though everybody else deny you, I'll not deny you. And he goes out and denies him thrice and weeps. Every single one of us are susceptible. There's not one of us exempt we're all made of the same mud. Paul is addressing the saved. Salvation is threefold. Immediately one is saved from the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 8, picking up in verse 1 and 2, uh, Paul tells the congregation at Rome and thus his readers, and he said, there, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. He walked not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The second fold is sanctification. We're no longer slaves to sin. 
In Romans uh, chapter 6, picking up in verse 14, he says here, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that, that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey your servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked. That ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to, and, uh, to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness." For when ye were the servant of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become the servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.10, he said, when we were uh, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And the third fold, we would find to be eternal salvation. One day, very, very soon, not only will we get our glorified body and be for, we, we, we will be forever saved from the very presence of sin. Uh, uh, John tells us over in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 2 and 3, precious verses indeed, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The hope of being free eternally from the presence of sin ought to compel us to begin separating from it now. But it's here that we see Satan's battleground. Because by decapitating the hope, that which empowers our desire to stand is cut away. That which fires our des desire to conform to the image of Christ, to grow in grace, is cut away. That which compels us to serve is cut away. Persecution can breed discouragement. Discouragement diverts our gaze from our hope. Hope is the anchor of the soul. We see in Hebrews chapter 6 and uh, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 6 and uh, verse 9. Paul records there. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that you be not slothful but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When God made promise to Abram because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. 
that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil." Wherein, uh, whether the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's there. He's there at the mercy seat. He is our anchor. Hebrews is written to remind persecuted believers that Christ is better than the old ritual which was corrupted into a system of works. The old ritual that originally pointed to Christ. The old ritual that many were aban abandoning Christ to return to. The, uh, the, they thought uh, to defend off the persecution. Because here at a time, <laughs> there's a double dose of persecution. They're being persecuted by the Romans because they have a king other than Caesar. And they're being persecuted for the, by the Jew, their fellow Jews because they've trusted the Messiah that was promised. It is the lively hope of a full and complete salvation that is the strength of our helmet. Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and in the helmet the hope of salvation. Or we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, Peter records here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith on the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Well, now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaven, heaven is through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth though be tried with fire might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love in whom though now ye see him not yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your salvation uh, faith even the salvation of your souls and Paul would encourage us over in Colossians chapter 3 and and in recent days, it's become a favorite verse of mine. But he encourages us in Colossians chapter 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. We have a hope. That ought to motivate us and compel us. Here is the anchor of our soul. Here's the motivation to stay out on the doors. Here's the motivation to keep on sowing the seed, to keep on witnessing. Christ is coming, and when he does, we will be with him, and we will be like him. It is this hope that keeps us up off the couch of do nothing we weren't saved to be sofa spuds we were saved to be active in the front lines that's why we're kitted out with the shield 
That's why we're kitted out with the girdle. That's why we're kitted out with the breastplate. That's why we're kitted out with the cleats and the greaves. That's why we're kitted out with the sword. That's why we're kitted out with the helmet. We have a lively hope. We don't just sit there and sulk on the sofa. It's this hope that Satan seeks to cut off. That's why Paul urged and compelled to be uh, to be uh, in the uh, the armor and to edify one another. Paul says over here in one Thessalonians chapter five, picking up in verse eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, for an, uh, and uh, for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Paul likened persecution to a, a transitory, be transitory in comparison to eternity with Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, picking up in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul writes there, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are uh, for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Well, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The helmet covered our brains, but allowed us to see. And our focus is to be firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up in verse 1, Paul records there, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11. Leslie is sad of her weight. And the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. How did he do that? He looked over into Revelation chapter 5 and saw the host of the redeemed gathered around the throne, singing, Worthy's the Lamb. He looked over into the glory land. Paul said to set our affection on things above. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted on the blood striving against sin. In our text, our command to take is between two direct objects. The second 
item we are commanded to take is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Kaitain makairan tal numatos orestin rimathiu. Tan makairan, the accusative singular feminine article noun. This is the Roman short sword, about 18 inches. It is a sword that was a standard issue with the Roman scutum, that door-sized shaped shield of faith. These are weapons of close-in personal combat. They don't allow for room for the enemy to swing that big old two-handed claymore. The Machairan was the sword of quick cut and thrust. Yet it could be raised to help deflect a slash from the broad sword if one got through. But notice, again here with the direct object, there is the apositional genitive. Taunumatus is the genitive singular neuter article and noun of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is, is the origin of the sword. It's his weapon. He is the power of it. But now notice something really rather important. Paul further defines the sword. O esteem rima theu. O is the nominative singular neuter relative pronoun which esteem is the third person singular present indicative of the verb of being is. It's a contemporary action right now. Rima is the accusative singular neuter noun, the utterance, the word. But you know, I, I, when I first saw that, I, wait a minute, logos is the word. And over the years, someone says, logos is the word. No, here, rima is the word. But latent in the word rima is the concept of that which pours forth. That which flows forth. Theo is the genitive singular masculine noun of God. The word that flows from God. It's Rima. If you please, that the Septuagint uses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And Rima is used there for words. But notice, if you would, the context. Picking up, therefore, in verse 3, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. You want to know why 
In the day and age in which we live, crime is rampant, homes are broken, society is going to hell in a handbasket, is because we have failed to impart the doctrines of this blessed book to our children. And we can't understand why there's no concept anymore of right and wrong. Why there are no absolutes in society. Because we failed to pass them on. And we're reaping the whirlwind. The word of God. Guarded the eye gate. It guarded the, uh, the actions of the hands. It was the means of edification. It was the means of cleansing and shielding the heart and the mind, and it set the standard for all that entered into the house. But we see it also as the weapon Paul describes, because it was used, as we saw, I think, this morning, Matthew chapter 4. Verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and there rima is used. That word, word, is rima that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Identically, it is used in Luke chapter 4 and verse 4. The Lord also used it in John chapter 6. Picking up in verse 63, John chapter 6, verse 63, the Lord there said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Contemporaneous. They are. Peter used it twice. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The word that flows from God. Paul used it. Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul used it again. Verima, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. There in verse 8 we see it. And he said there, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. We see it in verse 17. He says there, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the rhema of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yea, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Here it is the source of of Bible faith. The words that flow from God are the source of Bible faith. 
Our Lord himself again used it in John chapter 12. Picking up in verse 47. John 12, 47, he says, And if any man, if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. We need to have our hearts and our minds garrisoned about with the words that are of God. It is God's means of rebuke and reproof and edification. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is the Word of God that searches out our sin and surgically separates from sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is where I like to play with that great Scottish claymore, that big two-edged sword. And uh, the first time I ever went down to War Castle, and there in the armory, as we were going out the door, there was a glass case, and there was this big two-handed broadsword, every bit as tall as me, in a glass case, and I stopped. And instantaneously, Hebrews 4.12 come to mind. And I stood there, and I gazed at that thing. And down both edges, it were the, the edges were pitted, they were dented, they were bent, they were misshapen. And I'm thinking to myself, self, that's not too awful sharp. You get clunked with that, it's not going to cut. It's just going to mutilate. It's going to turn you to mush. There's not going to be a whole lot of you left over. Sin mutilates. Sin disfigures. Sin crushes. Sin destroys, but the Word of God, the Word of God is so sharp. It's able to cut down to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God is so sharp, it's able to get into where no surgeon can get. If it can separate between soul and spirit and thoughts and intents, it's sharp enough to separate from sin and leave nary a scar. It's sharp enough to cut therapeutically and heal. We need the Word of God. But you know, my Bible tells me it's possible because the author the Spirit of God indwells the heart of every true child of God to apply the Word of God to the point of need. Look with me, please, 
in 1 Corinthians 10. When I saw this, it became probably the most precious passage just about in the entire Word of God to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, picking up in verse 11. If you study 1 Corinthians, it was a mess for a congregation. I mean, if, if I were in the flesh and I were the pastor, I'd have just loaded my M16, mowed them down, said, God, they died by accident. Uh, what a mess. But then we get down to chapter 10, we begin to find out why. If you look at the first part of chapter chapter uh, 10, and you do a study, you find that every single sin that had Moses pulling his beard and his hair out by the roots in the Sinai for 40 years in the congregation of Israel is there in Corinth. Every single one. And then at verse 11, it says, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Paul says in Romans, uh, I forget the chapter and verse, that the things which are written aforetime are written for our instruction. This congregation at Corinth was so carried away because they were such spiritual giants, they could roll on the floor and froth at the mouth, they could sue each other at the law, they all had the better gift than the other, even though it was the same gift, and they ignored all the other gifts. So filled with pride. And in chapter 15, Paul tells us that there's a whole bunch of them that got allowed into the membership that honestly were never saved. They had no experiential knowledge of God. They were religious and carnality only. So in discord in the congregation. They were so spiritual, they didn't need the Word of God. The Spirit of God couldn't instruct them. They knew better than he did. Paul said, now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You think you're so great. Get back in the book and see where you're tumbling to. Then he says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. If you got a highlighter, highlight verse 13. Hide it in your heart because here's the key to victory. Verse 13, God is right now. Faithful. Why? He indwells us if we're saved. The author of this blessed book lives within our hearts. God is faithful. He will not suffer. He will not allow us to be tempted above our miraculous ability to stand. The power is dynamite. Dynamite. God's miraculous power. He will not. He knows our hearts. The ministry of the Spirit of God is twofold. It enables us to be in fellowship with God, but it enables God to communicate to us. 
And he knows our hearts. He knows the point in temptation when we're going to buckle, when we're going to fold, when we're going to spindle, when we're going to fail. And he says, I'm here. I won't let you reach that point. It's all emphatic. You know, I'm not going to let you be tempted beyond the point that you're going to crumble. But at the same time that that temptation, that trial, that test comes, he says, there comes a way to escape or a means to bear it. He knows the point. And with the trial, with the test, he gives a way out. Or he gives the power to stand and bear it to the glory of God. How? By his word. By his word. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. These things that are happened to them are in samples, are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. There's a bunch of people out there that say they're Christians, but they won't read anything else but some sort of modern, so-called, version of the New Testament. Uh, my God penned 66 books. He said the first 37 are written for our instruction. They're written for our example. There was a congregation he tried to work with in the wilderness. And all the junk that was going on there was going on in Corinth. If they'd have read the book, the Spirit of God would have dealt in their hearts. They wouldn't have had to have had all that sin going on in Corinth. If they'd have read the book, if they'd have read the writings of David, if they'd read what happened to David, if they'd read what happened to Samuel, if they'd read what happened in the garden, if they'd read what happened in Israel's history, read what happened to Abram. Why is Abraham cited as such an example? There's things there that the Spirit of God wants us to glean and learn, and Paul wants to apply them to our hearts and our lives, that we can stand or that we can see a trial coming and get out while there's yet time. God's not the author of sin. He's not pleased when we stumble. He's not pleased when we fall. Nathan told David, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And in day and age in which we live, a Christian crumbles. It makes big headlines. I was brokenhearted. I sat there at my computer the other day weeping because I was told about... Uh, someone I know. And their sin rippled down through the sin down through their family. And a grandchild fell. And it made national headlines across the puddle. Broke a school. Shattered lives. There's people that will never get saved. Because of it. 
That's why Satan throws those blocks at our feet. That's why he takes that big old claymore and tries to cut us off right there so that we lose our anchor of hope, so that we lose sight of this blessed book, so that he can amputate the working of the Spirit of God through the Word of God in our hearts and leave us impotent spiritually. But God is there. That's one of the reasons why we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise until the redemption of the purchased possession. He wants to work in our hearts. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, him the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have told you. But you see, back up a little further, verse 16 in John 14. This is in the upper room the night he was betrayed. He says, I will pray the Father, he shall give you another comforter, alon parakleton, another of the identical same kind. The Spirit of God carries on in our hearts the very same ministry the precious Lord Jesus carried on in the heart of his first congregation when he was here in the flesh. He does it directly by applying the Word of God, but he's got some other tools in his kit as well. He does it through the congregation. I don't know if it ever got over here or not, but a number of years ago, nominal Christianity on the other side of the puddle, those who think that they can improve upon God's plan and the Word of God, they began to have a problem. All the men that said they were Christians were doing the same junk the world was doing. And that's why God, through Paul and the Lord, tried to impart to us the doctrine of the congregation because he wanted an accountability group with authority, authority from heaven to discipline those who got contrary to the word of God, to hold members to account that they might live a life well-pleasing to God, that they might grow in grace. So they decided to have promise keepers. And you had all kinds of things that said they were Christian and uh, whether they believed the word of God or not and uh, Catholics and everything else. But we're accountable one to another. Yeah, okay. But you notice over here in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, picking up in verse 22, and I'm almost done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. He says here, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an even, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he that is faithful that is promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The Scripture says in another place, iron sharpeneth iron. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
It's free. It's not in the notes. Y'all have got something here. You've got something here in this congregation I have not seen in Britain in 20 years. And in the few weeks that it's been my privilege to be here, you've edified me. You've encouraged me. You've built me up. You've renewed a vigor in me that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. Because I see it working in your midst. You're doing what's right. You're doing what this book says to do. Exhorting one another, encouraging one another, caring one for another, praying one for another, and pleading with God for one another. And that's another way that the Spirit of God works. That hedges around and guard the mind against the attacks of Satan. Provoking one another, exhorting one another. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is, and uh, let's see, 1 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 15, Paul says here, If I tarry long that thou mayest know how, thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the congregation of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Just as the congregation of Israel, God chose them to commit the oracles to the Old Testament that they might transmit it on. In the New Testament, it's the assembly, the house of God that he has committed the task to keeping the doctrines and to keeping the word pure and to proclaiming it. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're to commit it to our children. We're to reach out to the community around us, win them to Christ, and then commit it to them, indoctrinate them that they might grow. It's where God's word is to be preached. And that's why he wrote to the young preacher in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That's why your pastor is teaching you the cardinal doctrines on Sundays. That's why I believe that God, before he even invited me here, laid this series on my heart to Inculcate doctrine that we can stand in an evil day. 